Amen. Amen. Indeed, it is a privilege and honor to be with you this morning, Forest Baptist Church. And if we do have any guests with us this morning, just welcome. Welcome to worship with Forest Baptist Church. I pray that the word of God will go forth in such a way that it will impact your heart, that you will leave this place changed and not the same. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles once again to Joshua, the 11th chapter. This morning, we'll pick up just where we left off last week in this northern campaign of Israel, where we have saw that Jabin, king of Hazor, he has rallied a great force. The text says, specifically, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, this great horde has been gathered to attack Joshua and Israel, but emboldened by a word from God, Joshua fights against these northern forces and defeats them handily. So let's pick up in the narrative right there in Joshua the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 16. We'll be reading verses 16 through 23. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Amen. What we have before us is the very word of God. Hear the voice of Christ. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baalgad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the, the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their heart that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. You may be seated. May the Lord a blessing to the reading of his word. Are you a friend or foe? In the aftermath of Joshua's conquest in the northern campaign, after this victory and observing all of these events, the theme of obedience with God just stands out. We saw that those who followed God's instruction were considered to be friends of God, but then we also saw that those who followed their own desires were considered to be foes of God. And last week we talked about, too, to be a friend of God means that they would be companions of God, they would love God, they would walk in his ways, and they would obey his commandments. However, to be a foe of God means they would be opponents of God, they would love themselves, they would walk in their own ways, and they would obey their own hearts. Situated upon this theme of obedience, we were attempting to answer a question. What we needed to ask ourselves was based upon what I see in God's word, am I a friend or foe? See, the key thought is being your obedience to God indicates whether you are a friend or foe. 
Do you live more like Jabin or Joshua? Has your life been marked by humble obedience or selfish ambition? See, the, uh, the apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he, he, he says it like this. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? What is Paul saying? He's saying, check yourself to make sure what you think about yourself is actually true. Test yourself. Don't just go through the motions, but, but reflect and meditate upon your life. Do I really love Jesus? Am I a friend or am I a foe? Am I a, an, an opponent? Am I an enemy? Or am I someone who trusts in God at all times? This is the question we need to ask ourselves. And, and we, too, we must continually examine ourselves to be, be sure that our faith is genuine. How do you know something is genuine if you don't test it? If your faith was never tested, how could you ever know that it was real? So as we are examining ourselves, this is what is before us. Through through obedience or rebellion, we're making a declaration. We're saying something. So to aid us in this reflection, the first question that we asked last week was, do you follow the world or do you follow the word? See, in determining whether you're a friend or, or a foe, A foe follows the world, but a friend follows the word. When we looked at Jabin and his influence upon all those in the region, the text tells us that Jabin, uh, king of Hazor, was head over all of the region. And as he began to press against God's purposes, he raised up those who who he wanted to come against God, those who were like-minded. But he used his, his power, his prominence, to send the word out and to gather those who were with him. He used his influence to to make sure they brought out their best military might. He used their influence to bring them to a a specific destination as they set themselves up to fight against God. But then on the other side of that, we see Joshua. Joshua, his influence was, was through the word of God. Joshua's word to God told him to be faithful, that on tomorrow, this very same force, that, that number, like the sands of the sea, will be crushed. So uh, following God's lead, Joshua goes out and he leads the children of Israel into battle, into war, against a foe that is greater in number, greater in power. And it looks like they have all of the resources on their side, yet Joshua knows it is not his might that will conquer, but his faith and trust in God that will help them conquer. So when you think about, are you a friend or a foe? Will you follow the Jabins of the world who use their power, who who uses their sway to get things done? Or will you follow the word of God? Will we be obedient to God? The allegiance of those you follow can't indicate whether you are a friend or a foe. That was the first question. The second thing that we looked at in the text, we asked the question, am I defiant towards God or am I devoted to God? See, in determining whether you are a friend or a foe, we we must recognize that a foe is defiant, but a friend is devoted. See, Jabez's response to hearing God's purposes, he was like, he ain't taking my land. I'm going to stop this. I don't want to hear anything about this God, but I'm going to stand against him and oppose him because I don't want to give up what I have. I don't want to give up my land. I don't want to give up my power. I don't want to give up my prestige or or my name. So I'm going to be defiant and not surrender all that I have to Yahweh. That's defiance. Shaking his fist at God. Telling God, bring it. Come on. Come on. But on the other side of that, we have Joshua's response to hearing God's purposes. He wasn't, he wasn't defiant, but he was devoted. In hearing God's word, he trusted God. He was obedient to God. He was near to God. 
who was faithful to God. And he found himself in a position of victory because of that obedience to, to God. See, the, the continual posture of your heart towards things of God can't indicate whether you are a friend or a foe. What did we talk about last week? We talked about your appetite. Sometimes as, as you get older or as things change, your appetite for certain, certain foods just changes where you loved it before, and, and later on in life you, you hate it. I remember being young, and I, one time and I used to love root beer. Man, I used to love A&W root beer. And I remember when my mother, bring, she went grocery shop, we got a brand new two-liter of A&W root beer. And I don't know where she went, but I went in the refrigerator, and I drank that whole thing. I couldn't, have been, I couldn't have been more than eight or nine. I drank that whole two liter myself, and it had to be in the span of less than two hours. Needless to say, soon after that, I found myself in the bathroom, holding my stomach, leaning over with a terrible stomach ache. To this day, I can't, I can't drink root beer. I might have a sip, but just to drink root beer like that, the taste was just so messed up. Though I, though I originally loved it and I couldn't get enough of it, my taste buds changed to the point where I couldn't stand it anymore. When it comes to the things of God, the very things that we, we hated before about God. He wants me to do what? He wants me to surrender my life. He wants me to spend time in prayer. He wants me to read this book, do a devotion. What? He, he wants me to love my enemies. What? He wants me to be kind and gentle. He wants me to be loving and full of what? Those very things that annoyed us about God, all of a sudden we can't get enough when we are in God. And if you have not acquired an appetite for the things of God or for the people of God, there is a question of whether you belong to God. And this week, we pick up with our last question. As we finish working through this text, be mindful of who you're following Recognize your defiance or your devotion. But see this last thing, what I believe is, is actually the most important thing in this morning's passage. Just as Moses declared that there would be consequences to the people's decision to obey God or not, there are consequences for both Jabin and Joshua. The consequence is, will you receive wrath or rest? In determining whether you are a friend or a foe, understand that a foe receives wrath, but a friend receives rest. Look at the text back in the beginning where it talks about Jabin. Jabin is gathering his forces. They have come out in military might, and they are, have gathered themselves to Miram. They are, this, this is their staging point. But the text says that God makes a promise to Joshua, then Joshua comes upon their forces suddenly. See, I like the fact that the text adds, the fact, adds that he came upon them suddenly because a lot of times when we're in our mess, when we're in our foolishness, and we think that everything's going to be okay, and we got our people together, then all of a sudden the, the bottom falls out. Suddenly. And as Joshua comes upon them suddenly, he wipes them all out. He kills them. These are enemies of God who are opposing his purposes. They do not receive rest, but they receive wrath for their disobedience. God's judgment is being poured out on them. But then we see, we see Joshua he doesn't receive wrath, but the text says he received rest. But why does he receive rest? We see Joshua has a soft and obedient heart towards God. 
Remember in the text where God tells them to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots, right? Well, why, why would God say that? To hamstring the horse means basically to cut the horse's Achilles tendon, to cripple the horse for war, but the horse could still be used for other purposes. And he says to burn the chariots, they're, they're made of wood, they would be flammable. Why does God tell them to do this? God wants them to be fully dependent upon his power. So instead of conquering and taking their military might, Joshua and Israel may have been tempted to, to say, look what we have now. We have chariots and we have horses. Look how strong we are. But God says, no, I don't want you to, to think how strong you are. I just want you to be dependent upon me. This is a great opportunity for Joshua to strengthen his military. But what does he do? He obeys God. Even when he thinks he may have an advantage, he may be able to, to become stronger, he says, I don't care what I see, I'm still going to trust God. This is what her friends do. Verse 18, it tells us that Joshua fought a while. He fought these wars. Think about that. How long do we have to fight before we receive rest? Well, just think about this upcoming week. How many hours of work do you have to do before you can get off? How, how many days is it to next Saturday so I can receive rest? But we see that Joshua put his hand to the plow and was faithful in doing exactly what God called him to do, not for a short time, not a temporary time, but the text says for a long time. When we think about your faithfulness to God and my faithfulness to God, often I, we can only be faithful for just so long, Lord. Now, now Lord, I'll be obedient this week, but, but come next week, I'm going to need some things to happen and change in my life. Think about it. Has God called you to something hard? Has he called you to a hard relationship? Has he called you to a hard job? Has he called you to a hard friendship? Has he, has he called you to something hard? And when we face hard things, the temptation is that we want to get out from under that, that difficulty as soon as possible. We don't want it. We're, ad, we, we, we're suffering adverse. We, we don't like difficulty. But Joshua was able to stand under this difficulty for a long time. What is that teaching us? That's teaching us that when we are faithful to God, when our faith, when our faith is in the word, we will have strength to endure hard times. We're able to push through. We won't give up so easily. We won't quit. We won't throw in the towel because of God's grace as we go through these situations. So Joshua fights. But I also like in verses 21 and 22, look here in your text. See if you notice this. And Joshua came at the time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. What's so special about that text? In approaching rest, sometimes God takes care of some unfinished business for you. If you realize who the Anakim were, you'll, you'll know that back in Numbers 13, the Anakim were the very people that they were afraid of before they entered into the land. What was the report from the spies? Ten spies said, we can't take it. Two said, we could. Who are the people that the spies says we can't overcome? We can't overcome the sons of Anak. We can't all overcome the Nephilim. We can't overcome those large people. So what is God doing? The very people that cause them to fear going into the land is the very people that Joshua conquers right now. So what God is showing you that, that you may, they, they may have thought that these giants were too large, that the situation was too hard, but God comes around and finishes them off anyway. He takes care of some unfinished business. The very reason why they had to 
spend 40 years wandering. The very reason why an entire generation died in the wilderness. This very reason, it's almost like a footnote in the text. They thought it was going to be some major battle that they couldn't overcome, but God, God makes the giants like a footnote. Don't you know that God will make the giants of your life like a footnote? He'll take those things that you thought was so hard, that were so big, and he'll make it like a dot. It's no big deal. I can handle it because I'm God. But verse 23, because of being God's friend, the text tells us, and the land had rest from war. They enter into this rest that they had been looking for through this conquest. Well, what do we see in this text? What, what does this mean for us? This text is pointing us to the fact that the relationship you have with Jesus will determine whether you are a friend or foe. The relationship you have with Jesus will determine whether you are a friend or foe. Well, how do you get Jesus in this text? In this text, remember, Joshua is a type. And when we talk, in theological terms, when we talk about a type, this is a person that in and of himself or a thing in and of himself that accomplishes that, that does something on behalf of God, but what they're doing is pointing to something or someone greater. So Joshua in the text, yes, he accomplished all these things. Yes, God used them. But Joshua's life was to point everyone who was looking at Israel to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Antitype. So Joshua's affiliations and, and those who came alongside of him is pointing to the fact that people need to surrender themselves and submit themselves to Jesus Christ because Jesus will come and he is going to conquer this land, establish his kingdom, and his people will receive rest. So as Joshua goes, Israel goes. So as Jesus goes, his people goes. We follow Christ. But just as those who are submitted to Joshua's leadership will receive rest, his enemies receive wrath because the enemies of Jesus will be conquered. This, this conquest of the land is pointing us to the fact that the enemies of God will receive wrath. Verse 20 shows us that the enemies of God are so bad off that they can't even respond in repentance. Why? In verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. Why? In order that they should be devoted to destruction and, and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. There's a lot there. But think about this. Their wickedness had gotten to the point where God just gave them over to their sinful inclination. He just gave them over to what they desire most, and that is to be God of their own lives. But this text is, is merely pointing us to what we see today. People everywhere are are hardening their hearts against God in rebellion, and God will take his hand off of them and let them go into destruction. How do we know this? Let's turn to Romans 1 and do some work. Let's turn to Romans 1. It's in your New Testament. Romans, the first chapter. We're going to start with verse 18. Romans, the first chapter, beginning with verse 18, you're going to hear some of this language. For the wrath of God, the punishment, the chastening, the 
destruction of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What is he saying? It's because they have chosen to deny the truth that God is going to give them over to the very lie that they're pursuing. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They, they set up for themselves idols. You say, well, we don't have idols this day. Well, we have our cars. We have our homes. We have our jobs, we have people, we have our, our, our phones, uh, these, these new fancy idols that, that we set up on a pedestal and we work and we, and we toil in honor of these idols that we have set up in our lives. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We will worship people. We will worship one another. We will worship the very things that God created instead of the creator. Instead of seeing the truth of this, this world is amazing. There must have been an architect. There must have been someone powerful enough to carve out the Grand Canyon. It must have been someone mighty enough to set the mountains on display. It must have been someone grand and great to allow the seas to go forth as they do. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the creature. We worship ourselves. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of, for their error. Their, their, this, this judgment moves from idolatry. It moves from lies. It moves to sexuality now because, because they have getting rid of God's truth. They in themselves have chosen to live sexual lifestyles that are out of God's will and blueprint and his plan. Is Paul just being a bully? Is he just being hateful towards those caught up in same-sex attraction? No, what, what Paul is doing, he harkens back to creation, where God says in Genesis 2 that he created man in his image, both male and female. He created them. If man is to be the image bearers of God, the easiest way to reject God's image being placed upon yourself is to reject the very sexuality that he has built into creation. So Paul is not just picking on homosexuality in particular, but he is saying that this is the easiest indication that someone has rejected God's order of creation or his righteous rule. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. See, he, he goes on to show you that this, this, this heart that, that is defiant against God, that does not want God, this hardened heart 
lives in such a way they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. He says they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. He goes on to say that they, they are inventors of evil. They figure out new ways to be sinful. I say they, I mean we. To every student in here, every child, every teenager, Paul talks to you too. Because in the very next line he says, those disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is, that, this is a heart that, that, that not only says, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be who I'm going to be. I'm just going to do my thing. But this is the heart that says, and if you ain't doing your thing like I'm doing my thing, there's something wrong with you. You need to be doing your thing too. You need to join us. You need, if, if you just a fuddy-duddy. You just a born Christian. You have no fun. You need to be doing what we do. Go ahead. Take that smoke. Go ahead, drink that drink. Go ahead, call that girl. Go ahead, go to that place. Not only do they partake, but they look at you and say, you should be doing this too. This is that hard heart. And why is God giving them over? The text tells us because they exchange the truth for a lie. That means at some point they were in possession of the truth. At some point, they, they, they knew and understood that there is a God, that I have to give an account to him, I have to answer to him. They had the truth in their hands, and instead of taking the truth home, they gave it away for something that is less. That is like going to, to Walmart, you have some million-dollar pearls, and you go to the counter, and you, you buy some of that, that, that fake gold, you know, those fake diamonds, and and you go to the register and you say, I got these million-dollar diamonds, but I want these fake ones instead. Would you please exchange them for me? That's what it is. God has set in our heart a, a consciousness that recognizes that there is a God. But what happens is we don't want him to be our God. We want ourselves to be God, so we suppress it. And we press it down and we exchange the truth of God for a lie. So this sin is ever increasing. So God ultimately gives these people what they want. And that is a life apart from him. An eternity away from him. So he hardens their hearts. This should actually function as a warning for us. So many people in here and outside of the church, think that they, they can come to God whenever they want to. They think that, well, I get my life together one day. But beloved, understand that when God gives you over to your own self, I look at the text, it doesn't tell me at what point. It doesn't tell me when. I can assume that I can come to Jesus next week, but what if he gives me over today? I can assume that I got tomorrow to trust in Jesus, but what if he says enough today? What if he hardens your heart today, and you don't have next week, and you don't have next year, and you don't have when I grow up? What if, what, what if today is the last day that he's calling unto you, saying, repent and turn? Because once he hardens your heart, it's done. You can't come. Why? Because you won't want to come. Because it's only by his mercy and grace that you come in the first place. It's only because he has sent his spirit to live within you that you come. 
He just wants in the spirit. This is like a judge sentencing the convicted and telling the bailiff to take him away. You will not get a reprieve. You will get, not get a new trial. You will not get a second chance. And some of us are playing with God's mercy and grace, thinking that we can just do whatever what we want with it, and God is saying, no, you need to take me serious today. They had the truth. You're here today. You have the truth. Don't exchange it for a lie. Don't, don't take the truth and exchange it as soon as you get in your car. Don't exchange it as soon as you get home. Don't exchange it as soon as you get to the job or at school. Let the truth of, of God reside, reside in your heart right now. So God hardens their hearts. And this wrath comes. And it wipes them out. Understand that sin is more than just doing something wrong. Sin in and of itself is a personal rejection of God. That's what sin is. Sin is not things that, I said it before, kind of go out in the atmosphere and sit there. Sin is saying, God, I don't want you, and I'm going to do this my way. What hope do we have? Turn with me to John, the 14th chapter. Just as Israel was obedient to Joshua, so those in New Testament days have the opportunity to be obedient to Jesus, but it only happens when you are his. Watch this. John, the 14th chapter, verse 15. He lays out this argument. Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will be obedient. Verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. We don't obey out of duty. We obey out of love. We obey because we love Jesus. We obey because he is the author and finisher of our faith. He, he, he is so kind and so gracious. We obey because we love Jesus. One author puts it this way, it is commonly held that we need to be saved from our sins, but the sobering truth is that we need to be saved from God himself, for his anger is personal and active. What does that mean? That means that on the cross, as Jesus was bearing the sins of those who are his, that God crushes his son. His wrath is poured out upon his son. The penalty for sin is poured out on Jesus so that those who trust in Jesus now, because his wrath was poured out on Christ, his wrath is not poured out on us. But the wrath of God is real. Just as this land is conquered, just as all those who are opposing God are defeated and destroyed. So will, so will those in the, in the end days that have been in opposition towards God. That's what this text is pointing to. But watch this. God is so kind. Because in verse 23, what he points out is, that obedience comes before an inheritance. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. What, what, what's, what's taking place? Because of their obedience, they have an inheritance in the land. We often want the inheritance 
before we offer obedience. Give me the goods before I give you my life. Give me everything that you have first before I actually surrender. But, but, but the text tells us that obedience comes before an inheritance, before you're able to enter into the land. God calls us to obey. What does Peter call it? Peter says that we will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven. The the inheritance that Joshua was able to procure for Israel was a temporary inheritance. But the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus is a permanent inheritance. And we will spend an eternity enjoying this inheritance enjoying the rest, enjoying him face to face through obedience, through obedience. Based upon this entire text, we've seen, are you a friend or a foe? A foe follows the world, but a friend follows the word. A foe is defiant, but a friend is devoted. A foe receives wrath, but a friend receives rest. As I was studying this, God was just revealing to me that the problems that we have with obeying God, it primarily comes because we want to make this land our home. We don't want to give up the land. So we won't obey. No, God, I'm going to keep this land. I'm going to keep this sin, and I'm going to keep that habit. I don't want to give it up. And God will come, and he will oppose you. When we want to hold on to this world and what it has to offer, rather than holding on to Jesus, we disobey. Think about your relationships. You know good and well. She wasn't good for you. He wasn't good for you. But it gave you a little bit of attention. You know good and well that that mortgage rate that bank was offering you will not work with your budget, but you're going to do it anyway. You know good and well that car, that car note is taking out three-fourths of your budget, leaving nothing else, but you will look sharp. You know that you got an anger issue, and if you don't deal with it, you will be fired. You know that that phone in your pocket is causing you to go to sites that you know you ain't got no business, but you want to keep it. You know that you're prideful and that you want people to see you in a certain way so you just won't speak. You know when you gossiping about people, talking about them behind their back, that it ain't right. You know that you're a control freak, and we know that we are sinful. But yet we want to hold on to the land, don't we? Though you may be struggling with being obedient, don't ignore the consequences. See, this land of promise that the Israelites received from God, it not only serves their immediate benefit, they had immediate rest from war, but it was, it, it's a type. It's pointing to something greater. And this land is pointing to the rest that we ultimately have in Christ. When we surrender our lives to Jesus through repentance and faith, we have not only physical rest, we have spiritual rest, emotional rest. There will be a heavenly rest, that land of no more, when we can just enjoy God for an eternity and not have to worry about the party ending. I, I used to party hard. It gets a bit one, two o'clock, I'm looking like, oh, man, one more hour. Oh, man, one, uh, man I'm having so much fun. I just hope this, this will never end for sin. But God is inviting you to a party like no other party. And this party, it don't close at 1 o'clock. It don't close at 2 o'clock. It stays open all night. Matter of fact, if uh, a day to God is as a thousand years, this party will not stop. And those who trust in Christ are invited, and you never have to leave. You never have to leave. This is what he's inviting you to. That is the rest we have in Jesus. Why are you exchanging pearls for fake diamonds? We don't have to. He has given us himself. 
receive rest. If not rest, then you will receive wrath. This land is pointing to something. Revelation, the 20th chapter. Starting with verse 7. The text talks about that there's, there's going to be a time when just like Jabin, Satan is going to start gathering his forces. He's going to gather a horde. It's going to be a multitude like none other. And he is gathering all of these people to come up against God himself. They're going to uh, shake their fists at God. They're going to say, I, I could care less about you, God. But, but Satan is going to begin to use his influence. He's going to use his prestige, he's going to use his charisma, and he's going to gather a force that, that will go in opposition, stand in opposition to God. But the text, uh, the battle is like a footnote. Verse 7, and when the thousand years were, are ended, Satan will be released, released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Why? To gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. Didn't we just hear that? Jabin's forces were like the sand. And they marched up over the broad plain on the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, and the beloved city. But watch this. This is the battle. This is the battle right here. One sentence. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. There are those in society right now who are opposing God, who are daring him to do something. Do you realize that all God has to do is blink and all his opponents will fall? He is giving you grace right now. He is allowing you an opportunity to repent. He is saying that I'm for real. All I have to do is squint and you will be wiped out. Conquest points to this day. Will you be a friend or will you be a foe? In chapter 12 of Joshua, we don't, we don't plan on reading it, but what chapter 12 is, is basically it's a, it's a roll call of every king that was defeated by Moses and by Joshua. And he's going down this roll call, then he begins talking about all the kings that Joshua defeated. He reads them off, he says, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is besides Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geder, one. And it goes on and on and on. And the text tells us in all, 31 kings were conquered, were defeated, and everything was wiped out. Beloved, when it comes to the end of days, will your name be on that roll of one defeated? Because you were a foe of God. Is your name on that list? But you know what the text tells me? That all of our names are on that list. Because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means from birth, my name was on that list. Your name was on that list. And that all those names who's on that list of opposition will be crushed. The question is, how do I get my name off that list? The word of God tells me it's not by my works. I can't, I can't work my way off this list. I can't do uh, extra credit to get my grade up. I can't do extra stuff and, and make myself look good. It's not by works. The text actually tells me it's not, not even because I believe. Because James says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So if I only had to believe in Jesus, if belief was the end goal, then even the demons would be saved because they believe. But no, no, there's something more. 
You need peace. You need reconciliation. You need to surrender and to join the forces of Jesus through his shed blood. Jesus, he is our peace. He is the one who has taken the brunt of God's wrath and that through him and him alone, when we look to Jesus, we will live. Through repentance and faith, I trust in Jesus and his his works that has already accomplished reconciliation. And as I look to him, Jesus says that I will send you the comforter. I will send you your help. What does that mean? That is regeneration. That is when the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. He does something. He takes that heart of stone that was hard towards God and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that is able to obey God. So now when God calls you to obey, it's not, it's not the worst thing that will happen, but you can actually obey him because you have a new heart. This is why Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So you were having a problem obeying God before, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to those who are his, you can obey. And your obedience is not so you don't get in trouble. It's not so you won't get put on punishment. It's not so you won't be put out the house. You obey because of the mighty love that you now have for Jesus because the text tells us that we love him because he first loved us. Through Christ, we are able to obey. And we don't see it as a task. It's because he changes us from the inside. He gives me new desires and new affections that I do want to serve him. Beloved, are you a friend or are you a foe? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Joshua and Israel's example. Serving as a type that points us to something, to someone greater. Father, we ask that the greater will come now. That your Holy Spirit will open blind eyes. That you will open deaf ears. That you will give us soft hearts that are ready, willing to obey you. Father, please rescue someone who is dead in their trespasses and sin today, who can't just do better because they're dead. But may you make them alive through your spirit this morning, dear God, that they may experience transformation. They may walk in a newness of life. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening up your word with your people. May you glorify yourself this day. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.